Hello, I'm Rachel. I'm a writer and tarot reader, and this is August tarot offering from me uh, in this 18-part series called Inner Demons, the stories we tell ourselves. And um, yeah, this one is on emotional inhibition. It's called The Hermit Spins the Wheel. And if you don't listen to it, you're gonna die. So <laughs> there we go. Um, during the first two weeks of August, I lived in a very green part of Norway. Every day I visited Fantoff Stave Church that was rebuilt by two men after it was burned down by some members of the local of the local there you go of the local black metal band Mayhem. Uh, incidentally, I saw them this month. Um, not all the originals, obviously, because one of them died. Um, I drank water from the tap in the apartment I was staying, you know, wholesome stuff like that. And bar a few days, it rained most of the time. The weather was cool, the ground slick and damp, and everywhere I went was covered in fresh greenery. The day I came back to London, I learned that there was a drought in southwest England and a fire in a foresty park five minutes from my house. Hollow Ponds is home to ducks, geese and swans, and I've watched their home quickly evaporate. I worry about climate change a lot, but I'm reluctant to express it most times, in fear that parts of my lifestyle contradict what I feel, and some invisible bits I can't quite describe being judged by other people. Um, incidentally, contradictory feelings are at the heart of this month's schema, emotional inhibition. So, let's go. The desire to contradict, first chapter. This month, I visit an old grave, the site where this personal but collectively shared exploration through tarot, philosophy, psychology, and art began. I excavate repressive patterns rooted in insecurity, denial, and outdated coping skills. I talk about obsession, ghosting, and being haunted. I also examine the Twilight Saga's relation to power, love, and the slippery fish that we are determined to hook to our rod's control. And you can sue me for talking about Twilight. I know that I have just thrown any credibility I had in the bin. Uh, but yeah, it's not friends, so at least that. Anyway, <laughs> I've been obsessed with beautiful things for as long as I can remember, uh, but have probably failed to define or grasp them my whole life. The whole, uh, the whole truth? <laughs> I mean, the truth is that I'm scared of catching something beautiful. Not only because of what I'd lose, but I guess having to feel in my body what it was to want something so badly in the first place. Also, like, I kind of have this thing where I find it hard to admit things are beautiful, or if somebody says I'm beautiful, I'm like, no, I'm like, I try and throw that away. Um, but I grew up watching America's Next Top Model, and, you know, like, I always wanted to be a model, so I don't know, but I, know I, will, I always used to pretend I didn't, so great, great there, you know, just throwing your whole life away. Anyway, <laughs> um, Carrying on, there's a line in Sally Rooney's book, Beautiful World, Where Are You?, that makes me wonder endlessly what we want from beauty and what we deem to be so and why. 
You seem to think that aesthetic experience is, rather than merely pleasurable, somehow important. And what I want to know is, important in what way? In the book, we are given characters that are prone to agonize over being in the right type of relationships and actively build up walls to stop themselves from having them. And I kept thinking whilst reading, is beauty just a matter of finding and being the most beautiful lovers and friends that we can? What does that mean? And what happens if we don't feel worthy of it? In Tina Dayton's book, Trauma and Addiction, Ending the Cycle of Pain Through Emotional Literacy, she discusses how later in life, people who have experienced trauma um, and have been deeply hurt by significant relationships in childhood. Um, I love how I like have a lisp now because I have Invisalign, but anyway. Um, can find it terrifying to become intimate with others, but at the same time harbour a deep longing for love and connection coupled with an ocean's deep fear of staying connected. Carrying a rucksack packed with contradictory fears of abandonment and of being engulfed, thus creating anxiety around the subject of commitment. Those who are willing to take the risk of being an in, in an intimate relationship may find that it provides an opportunity for healing and growth, whilst others may run without looking into commitments and not allowing time to know the other person, or subconsciously remove themselves from any relationship that feels permanent. So, you know, fun and games. Um, chapter 2. Haunted by Love. By the end of 2017, I was pretty much losing my mind, uh, starting off well here, very light, uh, looking after my elderly father. To keep his privacy and dignity intact, I won't go too deep into that. In January 2018, I met someone with who I was quickly falling in love. Blame the situation, blame me, blame whatever the fuck you want. That was where I was at. I thought he was falling in love with me too. It seems that he wasn't, or to my suspicions, the way I was pushed him into my depressive abyss. Before I started therapy, I'd never been good at getting what I wanted. It fucked me up, and I felt I didn't deserve it. So I'd act in ways that betrayed everything I really cared about. A few months after, he would leave me on the telephone. To this day, I blame myself in every way imaginable for things not working out for being too depressed to give him a relationship that was fair for both of us and for a thousand other reasons until my whole existence became a reason to hate myself almost everything i do now seems like i'm making up for all of that after the breakup, I realised why the ancient Greeks worshipped gods and demons such as hope, ugliness and timing. Before then, I had never been with someone I truly desired, not just liked because they liked me. I had never opened myself up to the risks of losing anything that I was genuinely terrified to lose. One of the problems was that I only pretended to open up. I pretended to trust him. In keeping with my protective pattern, coping mechanism, defense system, shield, four of pentacles, I had pretended to love lovers, but never loved a lover until him. 
It took a long while, plus therapy and a daily tarot practice, to come to terms with how I distanced myself using dishonesty and other defensive behaviours that had protected me as a child, but were cheating me out of a future I wanted to be present in, not avoid with drugs. And I'm still working on not fleeing into the woods like the hermit instead of taking the time and the risk, wheel of fortune, to invest deeply into people that I care about. My tarot practice intensified immediately after the loss when my imagination could no longer conjure the images to hope again. And if you think this all sounds pretty morbid and way too deep, then you're probably not a Scorpio or a Pisces. Psychologist James Hillman has written, Psychological faith begins in the love of images, and it flows mainly through the shapes of persons in reveries, fantasies, reflections, and imaginations. I wonder sometimes whether our nostalgic grip on symbols, tattoos, tribal rituals stems from wanting to believe that there's more to the world than what we can intellectually comprehend, explain, trust, what science alone can prove to us. So now I'm going to talk briefly about my two favourite pastimes, repression and obsession. key themes in Twilight and Harry Potter, which I'll get to next. I know you're dying for me to get into those. Uh, So, repression and obsession can haunt those who have had traumatic experiences. In Laurie Vickroy's book, Trauma and Survival in Contemporary Fiction, she explains that repetition can be an attempt to attack one's own fears. Obsession can be linked to anything associated to the trauma, sound, smell, visual or touch. I once spoke with a woman about how every time she heard a motorcycle, it reminded her of a relationship that she found near impossible to move past. In my research this month, I came across a line in a paper about fairy tales and trauma that suggested traumatic memories resist possession. Rather, they possess us instead. It takes guts and faith to reveal the base of your deepest desires and be honest about experiences that have sliced through limbs, viscera and heart and still be open, potentially, uh, for more pain. (laughs) Knight of Cups and Three of Swords. Chapter 3. Twilight, a fake horror film that challenges our sense of agency. And now I'm going to talk about how I really relate to the characters in Twilight and Harry Potter. Even though Loki, I've never seen Harry Potter, but bear with me. Uh, (laughs) If you've not seen the films or read the Twilight books, all you really have to know is that the entire saga is essentially about the acceptance of our powerlessness in relationships, about learning to live with the trauma of the past rather than cast a spell to render it impotent. This makes me think of something Hillman wrote about how methods in psychology must not hinder love from working. It makes me think about how we can intellectualize what nature will not let us contain. If we could turn love into an algebraic formula, which many have tried to do, to belittle it, to dismantle it until it is just a bunch of pheromones, hormones, and so on, would that mend old wounds? 
The truth is, knowing someone has hurt you because their body couldn't control it probably doesn't make things sting any less. I believe that I turned to studying fairy tales, fantasy, and symbolism because I wanted to approach painful things with a bit of distance. I shunned a completely scientific explanation because for me, it lacked compassion and the truth imprinted into the heat of the body. Maybe even because I rejected the realistic truth of the situation and sought some mystical answer that protruded beyond the rigid pelvic boundaries of logic. If I entered a realm in which magic could occur, could I delete past bruises and still marry the prince? When I watched Twilight for the 20th time and saw how the main character, by the way, I say 20th time, it was like one of my go-to films when I was giving up weed. Um, Anyway, and saw how the main character Bella parented her divorced parents and sought solace in achieving the exact opposite kind of relationship in adulthood, it was easy to see how she thrust herself into an obsessive, borderless relationship with Edward. The vampire guy who also didn't have any intellectual control over the way he loved her. In fact, lusted after her blood and wished to kill her. They wanted each other so badly. They were willing to hurt themselves and to exercise a level of restraint that meant they got to keep each other, not destroy one another. The fact that Bella becomes immortal in the end is pretty much a two fingers up to her childhood, the product of divorced parents whom fundamentally neglected many of her needs. She emotionally went, fuck that, all the love that was misplaced and siphoned away is now being given back to me tenfold for eternity. And it's not only unbreakable, it's more than I could ever handle. Bella creates her fairy tale ending by getting married and metaphorically heals, or at least moves past the grief of her mother's abandonment and her father's distance. When Edward leaves for a year or so, she resorts to hurting herself physically to get him back. Very creative, very healthy stuffing, stuffing? Stuff going down there. I don't know, I can't speak today, so it's good that I'm recording this. Uh, On the surface, the saga celebrates powerlessness and explores the journey through the characters, learning to live with what they want, what they are, and not a grab for power. Reminds me of a line by poet Keith Wilson, lovers who are filled with blood and nothing more. Jacob the werewolf guy sums it up perfectly when he talks about imprinting on a mate, which to sum it up is when your body chooses your partner not you, when he says none of them belong to themselves anymore, and the sickest part is that their genes tell them they're happy about it. I mean, my question is, do we ever really get a choice in who we love? Doesn't our body always fucking choose for us? (laughs) Um, Anyway, the grandfather of modern psychology as we know it, Sigmund Freud assumed psychological trauma to be not only a wound in the mind, but the unrelenting cry of the wound. It made me question whether pleasure was positioned as something the characters were forced to obtain, and if we all seek pleasure against our wills, beyond the efforts of our control, are we merely a vessel through which pleasure forcefully operates? 
Are we all trying to make up for some past hurt with love? Knight of Cups. Bella makes every sacrifice, not just for her love life, but to become immortal, to permanently resist aging and have a family that will never leave her and never cease in their dedication to protect her. Marriage for Bella is an escape from trauma and some kind of initiation into a family and a transformation she has always longed for. I mean, I feel like most of that is pretty relatable in real life. Uh, she'd rather hang out with basically dead people, shout out, uh, who accept their past traumas and move through the world regardless than actual living humans who seem to have lives Bella feels to be trivial and boring. When she gets asked to go to prom, she couldn't care less. Instead, she craves danger that quite literally puts her life at risk. To hold a real emotional charge from life. To really feel something. Twilight highlights themes of post-traumatic effects such as silence, repression, obsession, splitting. And pinpoints some of their causes. Abuse, violence, neglect, loss, a sudden event. However, like most fairy tale characters, Snow White, Belle, Cinderella, it shines a light into dark, cramped spaces and becomes the primer material to contemplate how the effects of trauma are pretty much necessary for the prog progressive resolution of the narrative. And now I'm going to Harry Potter. I told you, I haven't watched it or read it, but I feel like through osmosis, because a few of my friends were really obsessed with it, I've retained many things about the novels. So, I've read that Harry Potter has a difficult time acknowledging the grief he cradles from the death of the parents he's never met, and that the scar on his forehead can be interpreted as a physical scar of the psychological wounds he has never been able to establish, uh, wounds he has through never being able to establish relationships with them the unrelenting cry of the wound. Though he hasn't met them, he grieves their absence. This reminded me of the effects of being ghosted in romantic relationships, or even from friends. His past pain won't stay buried, though it has no place being dredged up in his dreams, and through everyday behaviours, grief subtly weaves itself into liminal spaces in his present. Someone, I don't know who, explains to him that the Dementors, who I googled and look, they look pretty gnarly to be fair, effectively make the victim relive their worst memories. He becomes aware of what he is experiencing and seeks help to quell his pain. A professor named Lupin teaches him something called a patronus charm, which from what I've gathered is like a positive force that projects what the Dementors feed on. So, hope, happiness, the desire to live, you know, those, those old things. Um, <laughs> this basically only works if you focus with everything you have on a happy memory. This sort of reminds me of CBT, Cognitive Behavioural Therapy, where you talk and learn about how your actions affect your state of mind. Like the patronus charm is concerned with the present the president <laughs> the present <laughs> rather than focusing on the past which we cannot change which it incidentally has been known to be pretty effective at treating trauma the experience of children's literature can be one of revelation expan expansion and exploration 
of pushing back limits at what seemed to be the only thing that existed. Trauma writing opens up a portal, fusing not only past, present and future, but the obvious and implicit, the real and the fantastical, whilst also seeking to separate them. The fourth book in the Twilight series, Breaking Dawn, does give us uh, the ideal fairy tale ending of a wedding, but it also allows the reader to go beyond that, peering into the problems of married life and the traumatic events that continue occurring for Bella. In a way, she doesn't work through her trauma. She embraces the potentially traumatic life and works within it rather than through it. There's something in that, I reckon. Final chapter. There's this line by Otessa Otessa Moshvig that makes me think a lot about how we connect things that feel so vital to us, like the difference between life and death. Maybe they understood, in fact, that beauty and meaning had nothing to do with one another. I don't even know if I believe that. So I guess I'll spend a lot of my life asking myself what's true to me. What I do know is that everything that's ever felt important to me has also scared the shit out of me. And that in a recent study, people who experienced more joy in their lives also had higher levels of fear. Do with that what you will. I'll end by butchering some advice that a a tattooer I worked with once gave me. Being insecure and scared all the time is boring. So, yeah, thanks for being here. There's two articles left in this series. Um, Yeah, so cheers. Have a good month.